Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. Today's guest is Dr. Andrew D. Huberman, who is an American neuroscientist and tenured professor in the Department of Neurobiology at the Stanford University School of Medicine. He has made numerous important contributions to the fields of brain development, brain plasticity, and neural regeneration and repair. Huberman was awarded the McKnight Foundation Neuroscience Scholar Award and a Biomedical Scholar Award from the Pew Charitable Trust. He is a recipient of the 2017 Arvo Kogan Award for making major contributions to the fields of vision, science, and efforts to regenerate the visual system and cure blindness. In today's episode, we talk about how to beat jet lag. What are the macronutrients for your mental health? Why suicide is a distortion of space and time. What's the purpose of grief? We also talk about why your neurology is modifiable. Well, the way your brain operates, we can. there's plasticity, baby. We can do some work up in there. And we also talk about how knowing the duration, path, and outcome can reduce your anxiety. And obviously, so much more. Now, you'll notice... Uh, that there are just a couple of strange edits uh, in the episode, and that's because we did talk about some topics that I thought might be triggering uh, to you, the listeners, as, I mean, they were triggering for myself, and I uh, so I edited them out, and it, it there weren't some of them weren't completely clean edits. So you may notice that, and so just know that uh, I did that because I'm always thinking of you, the listener, and I, the last thing I want to do is to discuss or share anything on this podcast that would uh, that I would would knowingly trigger you, um, and and just you know represent the opposite of why we're here. And as always, if you're a corporate executive who has just lost their job or going through a career change, or you've been married for 20 years and now you're going through a divorce, go to thrivewithleo.com one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Remember, I started this podcast because I've struggled with pain and despair, transitions and tragedies. And I want to share with you how I got myself through those moments, how I was able to thrive on the other side. So go to thrivewithleo.com for coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. And with that said, let's jump into the episode. Yeah, I have a uh, a ninety pound English bulldog mastiff, and he is the laziest dog on the planet. And it's it's awesome because he just uh, he they, he just loves life, you know. It, it seems opposite of you. I did it on purpose because I'm pretty Type A, and the bulldog is just has you know their their most natural rhythm is rest. And I just thought it'd be good for me, especially since I was want to bring my dog to lab and stuff. I do like to run and hike and get outdoors, and he can't do any of that with me. But, um, you know, he reminds me that, you know, it's sort of a yin-yang thing, you know, yin-yang. Yeah, I mean, you're, you know, when I think about a scientist at, or a neuroscientist and, and being in a lab as much as you are, by the way, you have the most diverse uh, cast of, of lab members I've ever seen. I looked at the website. And I was like, it looks like a United Benetton ad. Um, (laughs) Cool. I'll tell them that. You know what? Thank you for mentioning that. You know what's wild is that was true 
long before any of the kind of recent, that was, that was not a political move. That was just because my lab has always been about 50% men, 50% women. Um, it's always just naturally been diverse by country, by ethnicity, by race, by sexual orientation. It's just always been that way. And it's one of the things I love about my lab. And then, you know, cause right now, because of the, all the, you know, all this recent events, people are kind of, a lot of companies are like scrambling to make sure their board looks diverse and things like that. And I just sat back and was like, we can always do better. I said that on the Rogan podcast, we can always do better, but we've always just naturally kind of hit that rhythm. And I think it's cause I like being surrounded by people with a lot of different backgrounds. I have friends who are scientists, friends who are creatives, who are fighters, SEAL team guys. Like, like I just, I, I genuinely love diversity of ideas and backgrounds. It's like, that's just kind of, but so thank you. That that's actually one of the, that's very gratifying for me to hear because that's us. That's the Huberman lab, you know? And I, I would imagine as being as creative as you are also like it, it cre- uh, generates a wealth of different ideas where uh, you start connecting dots and seeing dots that you otherwise wouldn't have uh, seen or connected. It's, it's wild because when you run a laboratory, it's so different than doing science on your own because you're doing science as a team. And so that diversity of outlook and opinion becomes the strength. I was trained in a very interesting environment. My first advisor, it was just me and him in the lab. They, they were, there wasn't anybody else. So was, I got a lot of like one-to-one training. Then my graduate advisor, uh, she was a phenomenal scientist. Um, unfortunately she passed away, but she, uh, too young, but, um, she was very pure scientist, but really believed that the best way to get training in science was to just go into the lab and do experiments. And we didn't get a lot of attention from her unless we asked for it. And then she'd give us attention. And then my postdoc advisor was a guy named Ben Barris, who actually started his life and scientific career as Barbara Barris. So he was transgendered female to male transgender, really interesting story. I mentioned him in case people want to look him up. He's actually quite well known. Um, what's interesting is Ben was an identical twin. So he had an identical twin sister. His mom was treated with a androgenic drug that masculinized his brain in utero. His sister is perfectly happy being a woman. He always felt uncomfortable as a woman transitioned to being male. So my postdoc advisor was transgender. That was my first experience with somebody transgender. And he was really a strong advocate for diversity in science. And it went, he went to the mat for diversity in science. And, um, unfortunately he passed away. I have the, uh, young as well from pancreatic cancer. But, um, if you look him up, there's a lot out there about Ben. He was the first transgender member of the national Academy of sciences. He was extremely irreverent. Like he, he would say whatever he thought and he'd say it directly and he'd say it to people's faces. Um, he went after some very high profile people in academia. I'll let you look that up on the internet. He's the reason why certain presidents of certain world famous universities had to step down. He was not a gotcha kind of guy. Like he wouldn't have, I don't know how he would have felt in today's kind of cancel culture. That wasn't his style. His style was if you can't back up something with a really good argument and data well, then he was just going to trample it. But if you could, he would bend his opinion. He would, over time, he would change the way he thought about things. And so Ben had these legendarily long, huge lab meetings. There were 30 of, 
us in his lab when I was a postdoc and the lab meetings would go like four or five hours and we would just fight and fight, never physically, just like brawl over concepts and ideas. And we'd all walk out of there respecting each other. Sometimes it needed some cleanup later, you know, people's feelings would get hurt. We're all human, but it was amazing. And so that was my training. And then now, you know, my lab is a very peaceful place. I like to think we all get along. Um, but I was trained in an environment where if you said something, you had to back it up and people were going to come at you and they weren't going to believe you. And they, and so it was a great training. It had a ton of diversity, but also diversity of idea and everyone learned to speak up. I'll just say this. The one thing that Ben insisted on was that if you went to meetings, you had to ask questions. In fact, if you were at one of his people and you were at a meeting and you weren't getting up to the microphone and asking questions, he would come over and he'd say, I'm going to send you home. You're not here to be a spectator. You got to get up off the bench and you got to interact. And, and it was great. We all developed really thick skins. Um, we all learned to be wrong in public. We all learned to be right in public. We all learned how to defend our ideas. It was so good. And, um, you know, if Ben were alive today, he passed away at the end of 2017, but if Ben were alive today, I think he would have liked some of the things that he's seeing, but I think he would have, he would have encouraged more, you know, more arguing, but of course with the goal being arriving at a decision or a common uh, set of ideas and based in fact, and, and those arguments, it was a, it was a beautiful training. I feel so blessed that I had that training and I miss all three of my advisors dearly, but, um, these days, I think a lot about Ben in particular. So if you look him up, Ben Barris, B-A-R-R-E-S, um, or you want to read his book, Autobiography of a Transgendered Scientist, I think it's called, or something like that. I wrote his obituary for nature. You can find it online. Uh, just Google my name and Ben Barris's name. You'll find it. He's a remarkable human being. And uh, I think uh, we need more Ben Barris's out there, regardless of what they're you know, transgender or not. We just need more people who are willing to encourage young people to argue and disagree with the goal being to arrive at some consensus based on diversity of ideas and facts. So there you go. Sorry for the uh, little soapbox there, but I, you can't have a discussion about diversity without, uh, with, with me without me referencing the heavy and important influence of, of Ben Barris, who was also an amazing scientist, amazing scientist and neurologist. And this guy came from very humble beginnings. So it's not a, a guy kind of waltzed into the pedigree of science. He was a fighter and he worked so hard for himself and for others. Amazing human being. You talk about panoramic vision uh, in, a, in, a, in a lot of the interviews that I've watched. And it's made me so aware of how much time I'm spending in front of the screen. What do you think are the implications for students being homeschooled and stress levels because they're, they're spending so much in time, much more time in front of a screen. Yeah. Well, the young brain is adaptive. And so I think, you know, what stresses the adult brain doesn't necessarily stress the young brain, but there are some things that are universal. Doesn't matter what age people are that are not good for their brains and bodies. So like saying, you know, when you're a kid, you can get away with probably with eating more sugar and bad food than you can when you're an adult before health issues set in, but it's not really good at any age, right? So before, I, I'm going to answer your question backwards on purpose. So um, by just saying what I believe based on a lot of science, some from my lab, but also from other labs, are very beneficial practices. I just want to put these out there. I'll return to these. But 
getting some sunlight in your eyes first thing in the morning when you wake up within the first hour of waking. Ideally, sunlight before screen light, but a lot of people, including myself, reach immediately for the phone or tablet or computer. Even if it's cloudy out, getting some sunlight in your eyes. Huge, huge positive effects of doing that. Increases mitochondrial function in the eye. We know that. Improves timing of hormone release. Cortisol in the morning is good. Melatonin in the evening to help you get sleepy and sleep better. Dopamine release, this feel-good molecule that's released in the brain, all regulated by that morning sunlight. If you get too far into the day and you don't get that sunlight, you can't go get it by stepping outside in the afternoon. It's not the same. You have a so-called circadian rhythm, uh, which just means about 24-hour rhythm in all your cells. So blood sugar regulation. It even sets you up for proper blood, you know, better blood sugar regulation. So, you know, if there was one thing that was going to really help people, it would be that the next one would be also be, and it has to be sunlight to the eyes. It's not sunlight to the skin with dark sunglasses on or with a hat on It's sunlight to the eyes, two to 10 minutes. If it's a cloudy day, maybe 10 to 20 minutes. You don't have to be staring directly in the sun. Please don't do that because you could damage your eyes, but you know, getting bright light in your eyes. Ideally from sunlight, not artificial light. Even on a cloudy day, it comes through. The other one is panoramic vision. So rather than staring into a little small box, getting into a mode where you're looking at a horizon or looking off in the distance at something really far away, as far as you possibly can, try and see that at least three times a day, even if it's just for moments, especially if you're in an apartment living or you're in a big city. Maybe you stare out at an alley, get outside and find that horizon or get up on the roof. If you can do it safely, find that horizon, just do it. There's a natural reset for your nervous system. And then even better would be optic flow, self-generated optic flow. So this is when you're walking, biking, running, driving, won't do it. Um, you could even be in a wheelchair if you're, you know, if you're in a wheelchair, as long as you're pushing along and you're getting, you're doing movement with your body and there's visual images flowing by on your retina, on your eyes, it quiets this threat detection center in the brain called the amygdala and de-stresses you. It's not, exercise is not just about the bodily effects. It's also de-stressing you at the level of your neurology through your visual system. Now you imagine these three things, sunlight, optic flow, and horizon view, and you could combine all those, get out in the morning, take a walk outside without sunglasses on, provide you can do that safely and you're good, right? I mean, basically that's what you want to do. And ideally you might do it for five, 10 minutes in the evening also before the sun goes down or shortly after the sun goes down, you know, so basic and if people aren't doing that and it's all video games and optic flow through video games and the Peloton or uh, walking around your apartment, you're going to feel more claustrophobic and stressed. Your brain is not de-stressing. All animals know to do this intuitively, but humans, we've got so many creature comforts inside the confines of our walls. And now we're also being encouraged to stay indoors for physical distancing reasons that we're, we are abusing our neurology and we are going to pay the price if we don't reverse on this. Fortunately, everything I described is cost-free. Um, if there are blind people at my lab works on blindness as well. So I just want to be, um, respectful of the people that might have low vision or no vision. Uh, you can still get what many cases getting that morning light can still set their circadian rhythm. As long as you still have some cells in your eyes, if, uh, you know, God forbid you have no eyes, um, you can set your circadian rhythms through 
elevated activity early in the day or auditory activity, you can contact me if you, if you're blind, blind and you have questions about that. Um, so children and adults need to do this every day. If you miss a couple days cause you're traveling, you know, if you're on a plane to Hong Kong or something and you can't get, you know, can't do this because you happen to be in the plane, you know, you'll be fine if you miss a day or two, but not getting enough sunlight early in the day or light in your eyes early in the day is half the problem. The other half of the problem is people are getting too much light in their eyes from artificial sources in the middle of the night between 11 PM and 4 AM. And that suppresses these dopamine pathways, these feel good molecule pathways. And these are published results can, you know, lead to depression deficits in learning. You know, it's, it's, last thing I'll say about this, you know, the, whether or not you're struggling with mental health issues or not, whether or not you consider yourself a high performer or just somebody who's just trying to keep up in life. I have to say that every group I know of people that are, that are, have very demanding jobs. So I do some work with uh, special operations, military, both domestic and abroad. And what you find is, you know, those are high risk, high consequence, very intense careers, um, you know, lives are on lives are on the line, often on a daily basis, and it's these little things that lead to stability of a nervous system, stability of a psychological system. Of course, life events can impact us, traumas, losses; those are important too. But these practices that I'm talking about, which are cost-free and available to everybody, are the foundation of your neurology. They set that what I call the bedrock or the foundation of your stability. And it's these little things, none of them on their own feel amazing. It's not like going to a concert or something like that, but light in the morning, avoiding light in the middle of the night, getting into self-generated optic flow, social connection. We can talk about how that, that helps as well. And having a gratitude practice where you just concentrate on the few things maybe, or the many things that you do have, whatever it is, something that you, that's not the same as complacency, but that can make a true difference in your neurology, which then can allow you to lean into more, you know, kind of ambitious pursuits. So we can't afford to not do these, what seem like small things. The small things really are the big things. And, um, stealing from a, a friend of mine, Pat Dossett, who's a, you know, nine year veteran, the SEAL team is really good friend of mine impressive human being for at many levels. He always says that, you know, people think they're these high performance tools. It's really crawl, walk, run. It's the little things, those small investments that you make on a daily basis that support your neurology and allow you to deal with stress better, to deal with conflict better, to reach further. This is not an inspirational speech. This is really just about our kind of core biology. These are the macronutrients of mental health. It's like water, sunlight, gratitude, social connection. These are like, these are the, the, the nutrients that you need for your nervous system. I, I love that. And uh, uh, there's so many things in there that I want to unpack because you talked about optic flow. And I remember when I, uh, one of my old therapists uh, requested that, uh, suggested that I do uh, EMDR to help me yeah. deal with some uh, past traumas. And I, I didn't really understand it, and I still don't quite understand it now. Can you explain, because I know that that ties somewhat into optic flow. Can you explain how that works and if it's effective? Yeah, so EMDR um, stands for Eye Movement Desensitization Reprocessing. It was the discovery, it is the discovery of Francine Shapiro, who was a therapist, who 
discovered on her own that when she took walks and thought about some things that were troubling to her, that she was better able to process that information, a little less emotional load, little more clarity. And over time, she developed a technique that involved having patients, because she was a clinician, sit in her office and move their eyes from side to side with their eyes open. So it's head stationary, looking from side to side, sweeping the eyes from side to side. It looks ridiculous from the outside, not eyes up and down, eyes side to side. And she did that while people recounted their traumas and found, and there's a lot of good science on this now, that statistically they found relief from their traumas over time. Now, a few things. Why the eye movement side to side? Well, it turns out when you walk or move in any way with your eyes open, you're you are making those same eye movements from side to side reflexively. It's part of the balance system that adjusts for so-called image slip on the retina. I don't want to go too far down the, the rabbit hole of the science of the vi visual vestibular system, but you need to, every time you move your head or eyes or body, the visual image on your retina, on the back of your eye, it moves. But unlike an iPhone where, or a smartphone where you take a picture and you move your phone, it gets blurry. You see the world is stable because you make these what are called image slip compensating eye movements. So she was smart enough to realize the walk would have been great, but she couldn't always take her patients walking. Uh, first of all, she wanted to be facing them. Second of all, um, not all of them were mobile. Third, sometimes it's raining out. You know, there were good reasons to try and bring it to the clinic. And fortunately for us, she didn't have people treadmill because if they were on a treadmill, they wouldn't experience optic flow and their eyes wouldn't move. She brought the eye movement component to the clinic. Now, here's what I understand about EMDR at a clinical level. I want to emphasize I'm not an MD. I'm a scientist. But I have a close colleague in the Department of Psychiatry at Stanford. He's actually the associate chair. I talked to him about this. And he said EMDR is very effective for treatment of what are sort of called discrete traumas where it's, it could be something that happened often, but it's, it's easy to describe. It's one thing like you wouldn't want to use EMDR to try and release the trauma of say your entire childhood or an entire military deployment or an entire episode of life. But if it's around one specific thing, um, you know, a particular trauma, traumatic event or a traumatic event that happened again and again, and was fairly discreet, then EMDR done with a clinician, of course, there, this is a, a certified, this is a American medical association certified practice. Um, if you do that with a clinician who does EMDR certified for EMDR, then, um, statistically it can bring substantial relief, which is great. So what it's doing is it's actually quieting the amygdala. So actually people used to talk to me about EMDR and I'll be honest as a vision scientist, cause my lab works on vision and a guy who works on stress. I thought it was crazy. I, I was like, how in the world do these lateral eye movements, um, help with the brain? It just doesn't make any sense. And I kind of chalked it up to just kind of woo, woo stuff. And, um, I did, I was dismissive of it and I, and I regret that I was because, um, over the last two or three years, there's been no fewer than five peer reviewed, really high quality papers published in high quality journals from excellent laboratories looking at these eye movements in EMDR and showing that it very dramatically and quickly reduces the activity of this brain area, the amygdala, the threat detection center in the brain. So I ate my words there. Uh, and it, it has a real neurologic basis, probably in deep rooted evolutionary biology, whereby, animals or people that are moving forward are 
naturally going to suppress their stress level so that they can continue forward movement. I mean, forward movement, not just walking, but moving into uncharted territories is kind of at the foundation of our progress as a species. If we backed away every time we felt some stress or anxiety, we would, we would not have all the amazing technologies and things that we've built as, as humans. And I realize in 2020, we are feeling very compromised in terms of our progress and, and state of affairs. But believe me, a hundred years ago, more people died in childbirth. Mothers died in childbirth. There was far more disease and famine and lack of sanitation. I mean, th- there, we got a long way to go, but things are much better now. And, but these, you know, we still have to deal with stress. Nowadays we have one kind of stress back then we had another kind of stress and 300 years ago, 500 years ago, a thousand years ago, you can bet that a couple guys or some ladies and guys sat down and had a conversation about how to deal with stress. <laughs> this is not a new conversation, but EMDR turns out to be a powerful way of leveraging the visual system and these eye movements to recreate the the neurologic sense that the body is moving forward and in doing so, quieting these brain areas that evoke a sense of threat or fear. And if someone recounts a trauma while doing that, then they're able to be in connection with the, those events and reprocess, reprogram the, the relationship. So if they can talk about it without feeling as stressed over time, the idea is that then they will feel no stress when they think about that event, because let's face it, it's very hard to forget events entirely. What, what the whole basis of EMDR and trauma release therapy and behavioral desensitization and the sorts of things we do in my lab uh, with fear are all based on trying to invoke neuroplasticity, trying to rewire the relation, the, the emotional load that a given experience has. I appreciate you sharing that with me. And, and the, the question that comes to mind uh, because we talked about, um, you know, the optic flow, sunshine, um, and, you know, being outside that vitamin D, um, being part of the macronutrients of mental health. I would assume then that you probably have studied astronauts and, uh, how, how, what have you learned from them that could, for people who may not have access to sunlight, I'm thinking about people who live like in Antarctica for a year and then they're, they're months without sunlight. What, uh, how does that play into it? Well, my lab hasn't looked at that directly. The, the closest I've come to, um, actual astronauts. Um, I, I did do a podcast very different from this one. Normally I wouldn't mention a podcast on a podcast, but, um, uh, but very different from this one, uh, was with the so-called MCTI, the mission critical team Institute run by my friend, Coleman Ruiz, um, uh, and others. And it's, it's an interesting podcast because it goes out to first responders, military, ex-military and the astronauts. It's actually, um, played up to the space station. So, um, there's some guys and ladies up in the space station that listen to the MCTI podcast. It's a, uh, it's more about teams and work in teams, but also, uh, some other topics as well to, and, and so I look forward to communicating with astronauts directly, but here's what we know. They, you know, the, every cell in your body has this 24 hour circadian clock. Every cell needs to know what time of day and what time of year it is, believe it or not, because day length changes across the year, less so in California, but certainly in areas of Scandinavia. And as you get further from the equator, you know, winter days are very short. Summer days are very long. And every cell in your body and every organ in your body and your whole body as a system 
is incorporating that information into rhythms of digestion, rhythms of mood, rhythms of wanting to mate or not mate, rhythms of happiness or kind of more um, solemn moods. And when people go up into in the space shuttle or if they spend time in it at living nocturnally, maybe they're a first responder uh, or maybe they're having insomnia, they're sleeping a lot during the day, they're not getting a lot of light, they're up all night watching screens. We know that pretty much every process in the body gets worse. Outcomes for cancer, likelihood of getting Alzheimer's, all that stuff. Now, I don't want to scare people, but we know that astronauts suffer tremendously from things like glaucoma, challenges reorienting their body clocks, because it's a pretty unusual thing to get out that far from the normal rhythms of the sun and the earth. And, you know, every day, 24 hour, the fact that we have a 24 hour clock in every cell of our body is not a coincidence. The earth spins once every 24 hours and we need to anchor to something. So it's kind of cool if you step back from a positive side of it and think every cell in your body is matched to the movement of the planets. Now this isn't astrology. This is literally the, the genes of your cells, the cellular processes, the function of your liver, your gut, your heart, your brain are all linked to that 24 hour spin because we, there was strong evolutionary pressure for us to be active during the day and asleep at night. Now we have artificial lights. We can get away from that. But the further you get away from that cycle, the worse things get. There's a beautiful study done out of the University of Colorado showing that students get really messed up rhythms during the semester uh, just by way of staying up late and sleeping in and not getting light in their eyes at the appropriate times of day. And their cortisol rhythms, which is the stress hormone that you want high in the morning and low the rest of the time, starts getting all out of whack. Melatonin, which you want high at night, helps you fall asleep. I'm not talking about supplementing. I'm talking about the melatonin you make in your own brain. High at night, low in the day, gets all out of whack. And what they found in the study was if they people, these students got sunrise exposure and sunset exposure just for two days, it completely re and you have to see it with your eyes, completely reset their cortisol and melatonin rhythms for days afterwards. This is published in the current biology, a cell press journal, beautiful paper. And they've had a number of papers like it. So astronauts get really messed up. People that work the graveyard shift or or worse, swing shifts are the are really the worst. When people are working daytime, then they're working nighttime, then they're working daytime, the so-called swing shift. Uh, I plan to do a, a specific post all about swing shift and shift work at some point because it's kind of detailed how you might want to offset it because some people just have to do that to make a living. And and thank goodness we have people that are in the emergency room in the middle of the night. Thank goodness we have people that are willing to work the graveyard shift, so-called vampire shift, um, because things happen in the middle of the night. Garbage needs to be taken out. All the you know, deliveries need to be made. So I, I, I realize not everyone can anchor to a, a banker's schedule, as they say. Um, but there are things that you can do and still getting that sunlight in the morning is, is great. Don't sleep through that. If you, if you can avoid sleeping through it and, um, you don't have to see sunrise. You don't have to see the sun actually cross the horizon. You just need to see it when it's not quite overhead yet. So-called low solar angle. So anyway, I'll, I'll riff long on anything you, you throw to me. So I'll, I'll just stop there and, um, uh, hopefully that was comprehensive enough. Uh, you talked about melatonin. And, and getting sleep. I know a lot of people take a melatonin uh, supplement and, and in some cases are giving it to their kids or, uh, or maybe just NyQuil to their kids. Uh, is there, an, a, is there a, a, a negative effect of doing that to, to sleep for adults 
And and for kids, or or is it just about you know taking it occasionally? I mean, I don't want to be alarmist, but I I think supplementing melatonin is a slippery slope for the following reason. Again, I'm not an MD, so you know you consult with your doctor. But first of all, melatonin's primary role is to suppress puberty during development. It actually can suppress the activation of estrogen and testosterone in women and men. Obviously, different levels of testosterone and estrogen in different people, but whatever the levels are, they're suppressed by melatonin. The levels of melatonin that one takes to help sleep are thousandfold more than you have in your body. So you're really working super physiological, as we say. It's amazing. You know, you need a prescription for estrogen if you're a woman who wants to take estrogen or anyone that wants to take estrogen. You need a prescription for testosterone, but you can just go to the health food store and buy the hormone melatonin. I think it's a glitch in the system. I mean, I'm, you know, this isn't about um, access to supplements. What what it's really about is you're taking a powerful hormone at levels that are just not um, appropriate for the body. So there are other ways to get better sleep, in my opinion. First of all, melatonin makes you fall asleep. It doesn't keep you asleep. So a lot of people still have a problem of waking up in the middle of the night. I, um, again, I'm not a doctor, but I do make, you know, from time to time, I'll talk about what I do for sleep because sleep was a challenge for me and there are ways to sleep. First of all, to be better at sleeping, first of all, get that morning sunlight because it starts a 16 hour clock, 16 hours after that, you're going to get melatonin in your system. So if you're waking up late or you're waking up early, and you're not getting enough sunlight in your eyes, or you think you can get it from artificial light early in the day you're mistaken and then you're having trouble falling asleep at night or you're waking up at 2 or 3 a.m. and it's because you're not timing your circadian rhythms right. So it starts in the morning. Second of all, you need to learn to relax and turn off your thoughts. And that's really tough. I always say it's hard to control the mind with the mind. I think everybody should have a practice that they can look to on a regular basis to teach themselves how to downshift their nervous system. You know, you've got this so-called autonomic nervous system. You have has a stress element, it has a rest and relaxation element. It's kind of like a seesaw goes back and forth. And in order to sleep, you have to turn off your thoughts. You need to relax, but you can't just say, I need to relax. So there's a a practice that's available um, free. There are a lot of scripts for it online called Yoga Nidra. It involves no movement. So this is um, yoga, N-I-D-R-A, sometimes spelled N-I-D-R-E, depending on who's spelling it. You can go on YouTube. There are a number of these scripts. Some are 10 minutes long, some are 30 minutes long. You do it while waking. You can do it any time of day or night. You lie down and you close your eyes and it walks you through some breathing and some kind of like a body scan. And all it's designed to do is get you better at relaxing, self-inducing relaxation, which a lot of people struggle with without melatonin, alcohol, or sedatives. So I think it's something that uh, I wish I had known as a kid, but I actually use yoga nidra about three times a week. I just do a session, uh, 10 to 30 minutes. Um, any of the ones out there by Kamini Desai, D-E-S-A-I, uh, first name K-A-M-I-N-I, Kamini. I actually don't know her. I've never met her. I want to be clear. I have no business relationship to it. I don't make any money or anything off this. It's just the one that we use in lab is kind of, um, to, we've looked at the effects of these types of practices and they put the brain into states that are similar to sleep, not quite deep sleep, but they teach you how to get better at falling and staying asleep, which is a great practice. It doesn't involve any drugs, zero cost. Um, there's some apps out there too, and you can explore it. There's some also very long yoga nidras, like one hour and stuff that I think that might be excessive for most people. I do the 10 or, or 30 minute one. Uh, the other thing that can be useful for some people. And again, I'm not recommending people, um, 
take supplements unless they really want to and always check with your doctor. But for me, taking magnesium threonate, which is spelled T-H-R-E-O-N-A-T-E, magnesium threonate, as well as theanine, T-H-E-A-N-I-N-E, those tend to increase uh, GABA, which is an inhibitory neurotransmitter um, that kind of shuts off the front of your brain so it makes it easier to fall asleep. They have high margins for safety, so that's good. And they just make it easier to fall asleep and stay asleep, and they don't involve taking any hormones. Um, But I always say for anything that you're trying to adjust in your nervous system, look to behaviors first, then nutrition. Like you don't want to ingest coffee late in the day. Make sure your nutrition is right. Then supplementation. Then if all of that fails for you, then you might want to look at prescription drugs And I don't recommend people waste money or time on fancy brain machine interfaces. I mean, you want to keep the lights in your house dim in the evening, but that's not a brain machine interface. I am just totally um, disappointed in how many companies are out there claiming that their device has some real basis in in neuroscience because there's a published paper about it. Look, Look, folks, without getting into it in a lot of detail and without sounding too cynical, there are a lot of journals out there. There are pay-to-play journals. There are peer-reviewed journals. There are stringent journals. There are not stringent journals. I am not going to say that any of these devices, I'm not going to name devices, work or don't work. But, you know, it's it. trust me, you know, if there was a device you could just snap on, it would make you a better sleeper or something that it, you would know. It would be widespread in use. And so I think that the thing is to start learning how to downshift through things like yoga nidra, learn to turn the lights down in your house in the evening, try and stay off your phone from 11 PM to 4 AM. If you can, if safety allows it and your profession allows it eat a good meal, but don't, you know, maybe not too close to bedtime, but don't, don't be starving unless you're, you know, you're trying to, you're in some fasting regime or something, you know, magnesium three and eight and theanine can help for sure. I've recommended it to a number of people. They all are excited about it and cause it works for them. But uh, there are just a lot of healthier, kind of easier ways to approach the sleep thing before you go all the way to sleeping pills and fancy wake up lights and go to sleep lights and stuff. You can do all that if you want, but um, if you don't have your behaviors in check, then there's nothing that's really going to save you. You got to have your behaviors in check. That said, the supplements I mentioned, and again, I don't have any, I don't have a supplement company or anything. They, uh, they can be beneficial and at least theanine is pretty low cost. Magnesium, uh, comes in a lot of different forms, but the, some of the forms cause, uh, have a real strong laxative effect and, um, which isn't always good for people. Uh, but mag magnesium three and eight, um, doesn't tend to do that. It's more of a more kind of a mild sedative. You mentioned, uh, you know, first change your behavior and then look at your nutrition. Is there a specific uh, diet that would help one optimize their sleep? And I ask this because I just had my eyes checked yesterday and the, the, uh, the eye doctor said that uh, the Mediterranean diet is the best diet for uh, a person's eyes. Uh, can you speak to that? I haven't heard that. Um, I'm not laughing at their advice. I'm just, all right. So I want to be really clear. I'm not a nutritionist. I do love to eat. Um, I, I think I know a thing or two about nutrition, but you know, there are enough unqualified people out there talking about nutrition, um, on podcasts and the internet that I don't want to add yet another voice to that, but I know what works for me. 
and it's and I know that it's grounded in a logic that's based in neuroscience, which is typically when we fast or when we eat fewer carbohydrates, we have more adrenaline in our system, more epinephrine in our system, and we tend to be more alert. Actually, if you were to not eat for two, three days, before you'd get really lethargic and tired, you would just be really agitated and really hungry. You'd have a ton of energy to go find food. And that's because Mother Nature wired you that way so that you would go find what you need, right? That's what the the need-based agitation is based on. Think about any strong biological drive for cold when it's hot, for heat when it's cold, for reproduction when you haven't reproduced or sex. You know, the, those things go hand in hand in, um, in uh, biological uh, language anyway. Um, for food when you're hungry, for water when you're thirsty, they all create a sense of agitation. They all pre- pre- present as a, uh, a mode of pursuit. Okay. So for me waking up in the morning, I'm, I like to hydrate first thing in the morning and just drink water. And then eventually I'd start drinking some caffeine. I love coffee and tea do that early in the day. And I tend to eat my first meal a little, I tend to push it out toward noon and that, cause it keeps me alert. When I eat, I tend to kind of relax a lot. Now, some people, if you're so focused on food, you can't concentrate. That's not good. Then for me, as the evening approaches, that's when I start eating more and I eat more. I do eat carbohydrates. I, you know, I know there are people out there who do like all meat diets and stuff, and I'm sure it works for some people, not for others. I like starches. So I, and I think they work for me. So I eat, I do eat meat. I do eat some starches. I do eat vegetables. I do believe that there are strong data double blind peer reviewed studies looking at, um, the omega three and six fatty acids, like getting, you know, eating things like salmon, getting fish oil, fermented foods for probiotics. There's good science to support those as, you know, beneficial. Uh, but as the evening goes on, I tend to eat more carbohydrates because they lend themselves to serotonin production, which makes it easier to fall asleep and stay asleep. So, you know, everyone, I think some of the, the lore from the nineties, like, Oh, don't eat carbohydrates past 6 PM and all this stuff. I think that's crazy. I think there's, I've never seen any good science that shows that that's the case where I have seen good science is the work of a former colleague of mine down at the Salk Institute, Sachin Panda has published beautiful work showing that restricted feeding windows are very powerful for cellular health and organ health. So that means having a, you know, 10 to 16 hour window each day where you don't eat anything. Some of that of course is in sleep and then eating in a four to eight, maybe a 10 hour window. So-called intermittent fasting is it's very clear that having a period every 24 hours where you're not ingesting any calories can be very helpful for your cellular metabolism, for weight reasons, for cognitive reasons, all sorts of things. But you want to place that feeding window within your day in a way that a still allows you to socially connect. I mean, you don't want to be the person canceling dinner with, you know, people you want to see simply because of your eating window. I mean, that seems a little extreme, um, and not, you know, and counterproductive in life. And the other is to your work and school requirements. So if you find that you're more alert when you have some food in your system, then move that feeding window to that time. If you are like me and you find you're more alert when you don't have food in your system, and you're hydrating and maybe a little hungry even, then, you know, for me, that's daytime, you know, so work it different ways. One thing people aren't traveling a lot right now, but I'll just throw this out there. One of the quickest ways to reset your circadian clock when you travel to a new time zone is because light takes a few days to catch you up to the local time zone. In addition to viewing the sunlight in the local time zone that you arrive in, 
you also want to try and get on the local meal schedule. So even if you, you know, fly east or if you're in California or you fly west, if you're from New York or you go to, you know, um, uh, you know, Europe or, or to, uh, Japan or something, you want to hop on the local schedule for eating as much as you can. Um, cause it'll help if your goal is to shift your circadian clock quickly, because these rhythms in the body are governed by light foremost, then by food and then by activity. So light food and exercise are how you can shift your clock around. If you wanted to dive deep on that topic ever, I'm happy to, to we could do a whole podcast about circadian rhythms and mental health and physical health. But I think that's a, I sort of gave a, a you know, a, kind of a fire hose approach to it right there. But um, hopefully there are enough shards of information people can make use of. Now, you know, I, I've actually made use of that. And I'm, I'm right now I'm learning how to play the guitar. And uh, I used to practice in the afternoon. And what I found is that um, I will practice now in the morning before I have breakfast because it goes back to that hunger. Like I'm so hungry in the morning that uh, but I tell myself I can't eat until I practice uh, guitar and I find I have much more intense uh, practice sessions uh, in the morning uh, before breakfast. And then after when I eat and it becomes kind of a I, I find that I also eat less after I've practiced guitar for uh, whatever reason. I don't know if it's the dopamine being released, but um, but I I don't know. I've interpreted your idea of like uh, hunger and fasting and then apply that to, to learning. And I, I don't know if you've studied that or if that resonates on some level. Oh, absolutely. That that absolutely resonates. And it's because a lot of learning is gated by the neuromodulators, noradrenaline, adrenaline, uh, epinephrine and acetylcholine. And those are going to be secreted in higher amounts when you are fasting or when you're in, you know, it's interesting that some of the language we use of hunger, being hungry and in pursuit, you know, as opposed to being, you know, uh, sated and relaxed, that hunger and pursuit is, you know, epinephrine is secreted in our brain when we experience something traumatic. It's, it's secreted, although at lower levels, when we experience something, uh, you know, hunger, uh, you know, the, the language of the nervous system in biology is pretty generic. And um, the same mechanisms are employed in a huge variety of circumstances. So that's what we're talking about here. And I would encourage people to also be scientists with it. You know, unless you have a blood sugar condition that would make experimentation dangerous, you know, play with intermittent fasting and see where what eating window works for you. I mean, in theory, everyone's intermittent fasting because you got to be asleep at some point. Um, you know, I don't do long fasts. I've never done a long fast. I just like to eat too much. And um uh, I guess I could be inspired to try one, but, um, you know, right now I think it's an interesting time. There's a lot of information out there. There's no one size fits all. Some people do better with more carbohydrates, less, you know, meat and protein. Some people the opposite. And of course there are ethical and religious reasons and health reasons and all sorts of stuff plays into this, but it's a great time to get experimental and try something and stick to it, see how it works for you. I know it works for me and I arrived at it after many decades. And as I get older, you know, I'm 45 next month. You know, as I get older, I'll probably update this stuff. Um, I certainly change it as my exercise schedule and sleep schedule changes. But yeah, that's, um, uh, you know, that's uh, just the way it is. You know, there's no one size fits all, but they're all grounded in biology, you know. Well, you know, what's fascinating about the intermittent fasting, too, is the idea that it does give us uh, a bit more energy because, you know, people struggling with depression, um, they, uh, you know, they, they go either way where they're either eating too much or, or too little. 
And and a lot of people will eat, um, you know, with the idea that food gives them energy. Yeah. I mean, food energy is designed to be ingested and then stored and then used. Right. And so, uh, you know, neural energy is the energy I'm referring to, but it's, you know, I also know if I'm too hungry, I can't think. So I actually think best when I'm walking or when I'm eating. So that means I'm either walking or eating a lot, sometimes both. <laughs> um, so I, I do encourage people to, to be experimental with what and find what works for them. Yeah, Steve Jobs was always going on a walk, and he said that helped him connect the dots of, of whatever he was trying to work on. And um, mm-hmm. I, I forget the, the other author. I just uh, Black Swan was Nate Talib uh, Nassim. Oh, uh, Nassim talks about, Ta- Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. He, he talks. Yeah, about I can that. attest to the Steve Jobs thing because when I was a postdoc, um, I lived downtown Palo Alto, right near Stanford, and I'd see Steve Jobs and one of his employees walking every evening. Uh, he wore no shoes as the rumor stated that was true. And he would walk right past my apartment and, um, he had, it was amazing. That guy brought no security with him anywhere, despite his stature and his wealth. He, uh, and he was always just walking. I also noticed he was not carrying an iPhone or if he was, it wasn't out. Um, and, uh, he was, he really believed in that op- self-generated optic flow for getting the mind into a particular state. You know, I'm glad you brought up the iPhone because I go hiking a lot and, you know, I will put on a podcast or an audio book. And I found that um, after listening to a few of, of, of the podcast episodes that you've done and following you on Instagram, that when I'm listening to a book or a podcast, that my anxiety levels are a bit higher. And I, I, I don't know if it's because I'm hiking or because I'm trying to concentrate on what I'm listening to and hike and uh and i've heard you mention before that you know it's better to go walking uh without your cell phone can you speak to that yeah the um it's it's additional cognitive load to be listening to a story now some people like to do that and there's nothing wrong with that i i love audiobooks music and things like that i think there's real value in learning to just be with your mind i also believe that the subconscious mind processes a lot during sleep especially for creative people you know, your mind is reordering and reshuffling the deck all the time. And if you are constantly taking in new sensory information, you never get a chance to access that inner work that your brain is just doing. And so actually I was talking about this on the phone the other night to a, I'm afraid I don't want to drop his name because A, it'll sound like name dropping and B, I didn't get his permission. So I don't ever use anyone's name without their permission, but he's a very well-known musician. Uh, and we were talking about this and about getting the download in the morning as we were talking about, about hearing that, um, inner voice, the, you know, spontaneous insight, creative ideas for him. It's writing songs for me. It might be something about science or an idea that I want to test in science. Um, everybody has different things that they're processing. Maybe they're processing their, you know, their past or their future. Um, that's what the brain was designed to do in sleep. And then you're supposed to unpack that during the day And if you're constantly plugged in to a device that's giving you sensory information and worse, you're looking at it, you're, it's a, it's a double whammy. You're not taking in the optic flow of the moment. Um, you're not getting the stress release. You're, uh, and you're also inhibiting, you're blocking the whole design of the brain was to take in information, process it, and then 
you know, make adjustments. So now look, I also agree and I acknowledge that there's a certain anxiety in not looking at your phone because we feel like we're out of contact with things. I struggle with this a lot. Um, when I write or when I need to do work, I actually lock my phone in a safe. Uh, it used to be worse. I actually used to, um, put my phone up. I used to throw my phone up on the roof when I was writing grants. Cause I found myself, I would always look at the phone. And I was like, darn it. I keep looking at this thing reflexively. Then I put it away. Then I would feel like I need to look at it. So I throw it up on the roof, but then a couple of them cooked up on the roof in the heat. Um, but I'll be honest, there were times in my life, uh, I might lose a few friends for saying this, but there are times in my life when I actually have taken my phone and I've just, uh, let me put it this way. If anyone wants a couple old iPhones, there are a few sitting in the Pacific ocean. You can go find them. I've thrown my phone into the ocean maybe four or five times and just taken a month off from it. And I probably got more done in that month than, than I did in the previous year before it. But you know, you need a phone in order to communicate with people. But everyone that I know that's productive, creative, mental, you know, grounded in terms of their mental health, has some system, however minor or severe, mine of throwing my phone in the ocean was a little severe, I admit, uh, of regulating their own impulse to be connected all the time and constantly in the flow of, you know, or non-flow as it, as it, the case may be of, of sensory information. Oh my God. I've wanted to throw my cell phone in the ocean so many times. And the fact that you, that you've done it four or five times, you're my hero, right? (laughs) Well, it, I, you know, that I do have to end up going, I'm, you know, I had to go buy a phone and that was, that stung cause they're not cheap, but, um, I'll tell you, it's amazing. Oh, I know one, one trick I did, which is a little less severe is when I was working on a paper, a manuscript, um, in the early days of my lab, I went out to my lab and I handed my phone to somebody. I turned it off. I handed it to my, somebody, my lab was big back then. Now we're a little bit smaller, but I had about 13 people in my lab. And I said, if I ask for this phone back before I submit this grant, you each get a thousand dollars cash from me. And I shook hands on it. Now that's a $13,000 is a pretty steep, um, uh, penalty for, you know, wanting to look at the phone. What I found was the impulse to get that phone back showed up a lot at the, at, at the beginning. And then by the end, I didn't want it back. So it's kind of interesting how these things work. I think there, you can expect a period of anxiety and then for that period to pass. But, um, I succeeded in submitting the paper. They did not get the $13,000 out of me. (laughs) I love it. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk a bit about anxiety. Um, because, uh, you know, people are always like, Oh, in these uncertain times, I'm like, they've always been uncertain. Uh, but, you you have a, a philosophy about anxiety and how to reduce that, uh, talking about uh, duration, path, outcome. Can you talk to us about that? Sure. So that, you know, the brain wants to move things off to reflexive, non-thinking behavior as much as possible. So, you know, your heart rate, your breathing, all can handled by brain um, and connections with the brain and body. But reflexively. When we have to think about something, we have to analyze duration, how long is it going to last, path, what path to take, outcome, what's going to happen if I follow this duration and path. It's a lot of work, a lot of metabolic load. Anxiety and stress tends to increase our tendency to rely on duration, path, and outcome. Some people think it makes us reflexive, but it just generally can, you know, too much stress isn't good. But, you know, stress was designed to move us, to agitate us, to move us forward towards goals, as we talked about with hunger and thirst and things like that. I think everyone should have tools in their kit, real-time tools and what I call offline tools, real-time tools for being able to push back on stress might be 
Um, double inhale through the nose, followed by a big exhale. Repeated two or three times. What that does is it resets the levels of carbon dioxide and oxygen in your lungs and bloodstream appropriately. There are a lot of different breathing tools out there, but the advice of just take a deep breath or just exhale is not the best advice. It is not grounded in the reality of the neural circuits that control breathing. Double inhales followed by a long exhale capture the activity of a particular set of neurons called the psi neurons that readjust the levels of carbon dioxide and oxygen in your body and brain and are really great uh, for quickly really quickly bringing your level of stress down. You can do that anytime you want. If you can't breathe through your nose because you have a deviated septum, you should probably breathe through your nose more um, and they'll start to dilate. But you can also do what I just described through the mouth if you really, if it's, your nose is totally occluded and blocked. The other thing is an offline tool. You know, we all should get better at dealing with stress. You'd say, well, I already have enough stress. But the, the one way to do that is the whole, you know, cold shower ice bath thing. But if you don't like that, and frankly, I'm not so crazy about cold showers. I like hot showers. You can do um, some higher intensity breathing. You can take a couple minutes each day. And um, for instance, you could breathe in through the nose really deep and then out through the mouth. And you repeat that maybe 20 times. You'll feel pretty agitated. Trust me. It'll feel like stress. And then you can exhale all your air and hold. And what you're doing is you're teaching yourself to be calm with some additional adrenaline in your system. These are the sorts of breathing protocols that my lab is studying. I want to be clear that not all the science is, you know, in yet, but having a tool that you can use in real time, like the double inhale, exhale, the physiological side I described, or having a tool that you can look to when you're sort of like, Hey, you know what? Life is stressful. I want to get more resilient. You know, I want to, I want to become a little bit gritty or I want to be able to, to not feel so stressed being stressed, being comfortable, being uncomfortable, as they say then you could do something like the kind of breathing I described. Um, I don't recommend doing any long breath holds in any case. Um, can cause problems for most people. I mean, if you're going to get into long breath holds and that whole thing, you really want to work with somebody like a free diving coach or somebody who really knows what they're doing. I feel like there are a few too many people out there doing crazy breath hold stuff. Um, and it's hard on the cardiopulmonary system. Uh, what I just described is really simple. Again, cost-free. It can raise your threshold for stress. Um, anxious people, people with, who get panic attacks are not going to feel comfortable doing that high intensity breathing. Um, so they might want to lean a little bit more toward the kind of calming breathing. You just have to pick what works for you, but those tools work because they were hardwired into our brain and nervous system. Uh, yeah. I heard you once say that, uh, neurotics love New York because the outside matches <laughs> They're inside. And I was like, is that right. why I love New York? You know, I'm from Chicago originally. Yeah. And uh, and I, yeah. I definitely feel like I feel super comfortable. Um, I, can you speak to that? And also, for people who um, can't get to New York or, or can't put themselves in, is there a way to mimic that or uh, recreate that in some other form? Yeah. So it turns out like we all have an internal kind of metronome for some people like my or animals like my bulldog Costello, that metronome is moving very slowly. It's like tick, tick, tick. So when the world around them is moving, it seems to them and to us like if that's your internal rhythm or you're sleepy, that's your internal rhythm. The outside world is going to seem like it's going really fast. It's going to be like, whoa, I'm not ready for all that yet. Whereas if your internal rhythm is tick, 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 well, then things outside you that are 
kind of that are moving at that same frequency, tick, 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 are going to seem in sync with you. And you'll feel like, oh, I'm part of the walking pace of Manhattan. Whereas if you are, for instance, really stressed, let's say you're in line at the grocery store and you got to get your groceries, get home, get your kid, you have a bunch of things on your plate and the person in front of you is returning some items and they're moving slowly. Maybe there's somebody who needs a little more time. It's going to seem like a very long time because your internal metronome is going tick, 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 tick. And when I say internal metronome, I'm not making that up. What it is is it's a set of neural circuits that are oscillating at a certain frequency, including your phrenic nerve, your vagus, et cetera. It's not one brain area. It's kind of a, a collection of them. But if you're like tick, 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 tick internally, well, then things outside, you're going to seem like they're going really slow. So I joked uh, on, yeah, on that Rogan podcast, I said, you know, the reason I like New York is because it's so it's fast paced and I think I'm kind of neurotic on I meaning I think my internal pace is pretty quick most of the time not always and so in New York I feel right at home I feel like I feel at peace because I you know there's the internal and the external are, I feel like are matched um, they've done some interesting studies looking at walking speeds in different cities and speech speeds and things like that I think everybody has a kind of natural look when we're asleep it's very, the metronome is slow when we're awake it's faster. I think everybody has their own intrinsic kind of range. Um, some people are mellower. Some people are more high intensity. Um, you know, I mentioned Costello, my bulldog. The bulldog is a mellow animal. A whippet or a pit bull, they're like, they'll sleep. But when they're awake, it's like that metronome is going tick, 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 higher levels of baseline autonomic arousal. That's what we would call it. It's actually a really nice study published in the Journal of Neuroscience. Looked at... Um, MRI of dog brains, live dog brains. They didn't harm the dogs. They just took a lot of different species of dogs and scanned their brains. And some dogs have more kind of frontal activation where they're looking and anticipating the sight hounds. What's out there? What's happening? They're more vigilant. My bulldog that I have one of those little robot vacuums, it sometimes goes, knocks right into his face while he's sleeping. He'll open his eyes. He'll just look at that thing like, hmm. So, you know, we know people like that. We know people who are a little more high strung or more of a startle reflex. I think we all need to just learn how to adjust our nervous system around us around a space and just accept that there are these differences and, you know, lifestyle and, um, you know, some people wake up at 4am and they're ready to charge. I need two cups of coffee, two cups of tea, some hydration before I'm feel ready to do anything. So I think we all, there's a lot of variation. There's no right or wrong. You know, when we look at uh, suicide rates, they typically change uh, or they, there's a spike when we go from summer to fall uh, or from winter to, yeah, from summer to fall because of the uh, the increase in sunlight and that extended daylight. A lot of people think it happens mostly in the, in the winter, but basically it sounds like you're saying is like the metronome changes of the, the energy Outside doesn't match their energy inside, and it creates this kind of agitation in people. Um, and I think like a, enough people aren't aware of how that uh, how that change in the seasons can affect them. I mean, this, we talked about sunlight early on, and now it's too much sunlight. So now you feel like you always have to be on a treadmill, and that your metronome should be going faster than what the time says. Right. Well, there are a lot of reasons why people commit suicide, and um you know, but what you're raising is a really interesting possibility, which is that part of the reason why they're where statistically that you, you know, people have claimed they're more 
uh, suicides in the spring as days get longer could be not because people are feeling more alert and better, but because the people around them are feeling more alert and better and they feel more of the the more of the disparity between the way they believe they're functioning and the people around them. That's one idea. I, I don't know if it's ever been tested. Um, if it has, I haven't seen the study, but that doesn't only reflects my ignorance, not the, not the, any study. Um, I think, you know, suicide is such a complicated and devastating thing. You know, we, uh, we have an ability, our nervous system allows us to interocept, which is to pay attention to what's going on within the confines of our skin, including our thoughts and feelings. And we have the ability also based on our nervous system to exterocept, to, see what's going on in the outside world around us beyond the confines of our skin. And those two things are always in dynamic balance, kind of like two spotlights. One might get brighter, one might get dimmer, one might get bigger, one might get smaller. Sometimes all of our attention is internal. Sometimes it's all external. And I've always thought as suicide as a kind of a massive interoception, you know, where almost both spotlights move inward. And, and if the person's internal state is not one, uh, that is pleasant or is really unpleasant, well, then it can seem like that's the whole universe because where we focus our attention, it also gives us a sense of time. You know, the, you know, one of the issues with mental disease, mental health is that when, you know, if I ask you right now, you know, can you tolerate feeling sad for one second? You'd say yes. And I'd say, well, how about a minute? You'd say yes. Say an hour. You'd say yes. But in mental, in depression, and in certain forms of anxiety, people feel like the state that they're in is going to either go on forever or is going to keep returning, kind of like a phantom that's going to sneak up out of nowhere and get them, especially when they start feeling better again. So, you know, suicide is a distortion of space and time. It's a distortion of the fact that things change. It's a, you know, I mean, grief can be devastating, but it does not go on forever. But for someone who's in suicidal ideation, it, they're really, it's a, it really is a tunnel that they can't see out of. And I think it's not just, they can't see out of it physically. They can't see out of it in terms of time. They, they cannot sense that there would, the possibility of a different reality. We don't understand the neurology around suicide just yet. There's some, you know, it, there's a certain violent component sometimes, not always, I have a colleague up at the University of Washington who's studying the violence associated with suicide. Um, I can give you his name and, and maybe he'd be an interesting person to talk to for the podcast um, because, you know, there's a, there are circuits in the brain for fighting and for violence and it's, it's rare and non-adaptive to turn those circuits on the self, but they are the same circuits for violence that uh, we see inflicted outwardly on other people. So, um, you know, Neuroscience is doing a lot to try and unpack what these mechanisms are for aggression, for self-aggression, for externalized aggression. But we, I think we can reasonably say that there's a, a real distortion of time and space in suicidal ideation where people are not connected, obviously, to the same reality that other people are connected to. And here I'm not trying to just restate the obvious in neuros, through a neuroscientific lens, but I think once we can better understand how the brain processes time and bins time, thinks of time bins, moments as and and pervasiveness of emotion and things like that, I think we're going to be in a position to intervene and help people feel f help a lot of people feel less lost 
and less uh, in a in a tunnel where they they can't sense a different reality. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that because uh, I uh, you personally have you've lost a couple people to uh, suicide yourself, um, and you also shared that uh, you had a friend who was uh, has schizophrenia as I did. One of my buddies at the age of nineteen. Um, schizophrenia. Is there anything that uh, you found in your research uh, to help uh, mitigate or manage schizophrenia? I, I know that uh, exercise, diet, there's some natural ways to do that, but as a, uh, neuroscience um, explains some of what's happening there. Yeah, so I had a friend growing up who, you know, he was different, <laughs> but then again, I, I, I had a lot of friends who were different, and not all of them became schizophrenic. Um, and he was odd, you know, um, he, he was different for sure, but he, uh, he got involved in taking, um, some amphetamine and he was doing a lot of psychedelics for a while. And yeah, he went full blown schizophrenic. I think he's still in that. Uh, he travels from time to time I hear, but I think he would, uh, last I heard he was in the mission district in San Francisco and, um, you know, auditory hallucinations, you know, psychoses, you know, he clearly, uh, saw and felt meaning in things that other people don't. And, um, and, you know, I think at the sort of classic view of schizophrenia by the neuroscientists is that it's the dopamine hypothesis, that there's elevated levels of dopamine throughout the brain drugs, which they call neuroleptics. They come in two flavors, um, typical neuroleptics, which block mainly the D2 dopamine receptor and then atypical neuroleptics, which block the D4 uh, dopamine receptor, um, have some success in blocking the, uh, auditory hallucinations, which are the most kind of, um, profound effect, uh, on schizophrenics. But, um, those drugs are really tough cause they, they, they make people feel not good. Um, now there are better drugs nowadays that have fewer side effects, but, um, they can cause like physical writhing and lip smacking. And, uh, you know, oftentimes you'll see a schizophrenic on the street, you'll think that they're on drugs and they're actually just on their prescription drugs. Um, but then when you see schizophrenics who are off their medication, that can be pretty scary. And sometimes like the catatonic schizophrenics, they're just immobile for days and days. So there's a glutamate hypothesis that got popular for a while. There's this, um, interest in a gene called DISC2, D-I-S-C, which in mice um, seems to recreate when mutated into mice can recreate some of the symptoms of schizophrenia. It is a tough problem. Uh, I'm not aware of any breakthroughs just yet, but what I can tell you is there are excellent labs working very, very hard on trying to solve this problem. Certainly early detection and leveraging neuroplasticity to try and rewire the brain for the better um, is one approach. Uh, but it has to be caught early and schizophrenia typically, um, when people look back, they realize, oh, this person was different. They were strange, but you can't always predict who's going to be schizophrenic in twin studies. Like, so monozygotic, what are called dichorionic twins. So these would be identical twins that shared the same placental sac. There is a higher concordance, meaning if they're separated at birth, even at different families, different circumstances, there's a higher probability that if one twin has schizophrenia, the other one will have it too. So there is a genetic component. Andrew, is there is there anything that we haven't? I mean, there's 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 so there's so much more I want to ask you, but I I, I already know I've, I've monopolized a, a lot of your time. No, um, you didn't monopolize the time. I'm grateful to be here. So I have a theory about grief, and I don't know that it um, 
solves any problems, but I, it's something to think about. It's just a theory, but based on an understanding of memory systems in the brain and emotional systems in the brain. So it's not completely unfounded. You know, one idea is that, um, grief if, in biology, we, we think of things as processes, not events. And so they have a beginning, a middle and an end. And, and, you know, you could imagine that grief, which is, um, you know, grief has varying intensities. You can be sad, you can be devastated, you know, um, it, they have a pervasiveness. It can be quick. It can be long lived, right? So these are states of mind. Um, and grief is a state of mind that may have some utility. You know, if an animal or a member of a group dies, there's actually a strong evolutionary pressure to not interact with the dead body because it's infectious. If actually, if you think about disgust of all kinds, it generally is correlated with infection, uh, potential for infection. So think of all the gross stuff out there. I don't have to name it off that most of the time it's stuff that can get you sick in addition to just being disgusting. That's not a coincidence. We're hardwired for that. Okay. Um, I'll give a very intense example. It's not meant to trigger anybody, but if you want to think of a, a, and a, a behavioral event that has strong evolutionary drive to avoid it, just like you would want to avoid heights or, or intense heat or anything else that could damage you. Incest is a, is a example where I think most all human beings, I, I wish all human beings, but I think most all human beings would agree that there's a disgust ref reflex to the idea of incest and incest carries a heavy genetic penalty. The offspring of in incest uh, relationships uh, have high levels of mutation, right? This is why mating amongst close of kin is discouraged, right? That's not, that's not a cultural thing. That's a biological pressure, right? So disgust, like for um, putrid smells, for things that, you know, smell bad or taste bad, they naturally evoke a visceral reflex of trying to get away from it because it's infectious, Right. Now, of course, you can find examples where people like that stuff or they fetishize that stuff, but that stuff is considered perverse and I'm not judging, but, but it, it's not random what we consider perverse. It generally has some evolutionary pressure where those things are detrimental to our health, right? So I won't get into specific examples. I'm sure people can imagine them on their own. Grief is an interesting state of mind because it's a state of mind in which we are feeling intense sadness, but that sadness may have a utility. The utility of that sadness may be to get us to stop interacting with the dead body. Now we put bodies in the ground, but we also need to stop interacting with the possessions of that person as if they were around. The, in other words, grief could be viewed as a pressure to start engaging in behaviors that take us away from the physical object of the person. And it's a process. It may actually be the movement of the memory of the person in the brain from actionable items to inactionable items. So let me be a little bit more concrete about this. Let's say I get a new pair of sunglasses that I like. Let's say I love these sunglasses. I really love them. You know, some sunglasses are really expensive. Like, oh, I got these new sunglasses. You love them. Let's say you set them down on a table. You turn around, they're gone. You're like, what? What? You'll start looking around. You're pretty upset about it, right? The money, you like the sunglasses. This is not like grieving a human loss, but the example holds. 
over time, I will adjust. I'm not going to grieve the loss of those sunglasses, okay? But there's a period of time in which I'm really upset about it, and it's because they're no longer actionable. They're not there. And when you listen to people talk about the process of grief, you f see something interesting. I, I actually started thinking about this because I had read a book by the great physicist Richard Feynman. You know, his first wife died very young of tuberculosis, and he talked about how he used to um, she died and he didn't quite register the grief until one day he was walking by a store. He looked in the window. He saw a really nice dress and he thought, wow, I would love to buy that for her. And all of a sudden it hit him like, like a ton of bricks that she was gone. It's like when we, you know, it's funny. I occasionally I've, I've, I've lost a number of people like anyone my age likely has. So my story is not unique, but occasionally um, because their phones have been taken over by other people, I'll get a message from, from them and they still have their name in my phone as the original person. And for a moment, I think it's them calling me and then I go, Oh no, it's their kid or whatever, which is nice to hear from their kids. But it's like, Oh, and grief may actually be the transfer of the memory and concept of someone or something from actionable, like I could reach for it or call them to inactionable. And it would make sense to me if that were the case, because like, if so I don't talk to someone for a long, you know, on a daily basis, whether or not they're dead or alive really doesn't impact my daily life. Except once I know they're dead, it really impacts my daily life, right? They're no longer actionable in my life. I can't call them. I can't talk to them. I can't send them a letter. I can't go visit them. You get it. So it may be that grief is a process of moving memory of someone or something from one state of actionable to inactionable. Now that's just intellectualizing the process. And I agree. And I want to acknowledge that that doesn't change the process. But I do believe that as humans who have very evolved frontal cortices that allow us to think and analyze things, that sometimes seeing these things that are very primal, fear, anxiety, happiness, grief, seeing those as neurologic processes sometimes can help us orient ourselves when we're feeling like it's just overwhelming. And again, this is just a theory, but if we were to accept that for a moment, just for sake of discussion, that grief might be a process of moving memories from actionable concepts to inactionable concepts, and that that process is deliberately painful so that we are careful to not ever act as if the person were still alive, that, um, could be of strong utility because in the animal kingdom, you know, dead bodies are infectious in the human kingdom. Dead bodies are infectious. There's a, there's a strong evolutionary drive to get away from the body. And, uh, we bury people, we cremate people, we do various things depending on culture, religion, and background. But uh, anyway, those are just some theories I think about grief a lot. Um, I have the, the uh, somewhat um, complicated reputation of having my undergraduate advisor, my graduate advisor, and my postdoc advisor all die young so that the joke in my business is you don't want me to work for you. Um, I can make that joke cause, and I think they would all laugh about that cause each one of them had, uh, a sort of morbid sense of humor, but in all seriousness, you know, um, I, and I realize that everyone out there has stories of grief and each one is very intense and very valid. I only offer this as, as, um, sort of, uh, angles for thought. I'd be delighted if people disagree with me. Um, I don't claim this to be a grand theory of anything. It's just my thoughts on the subject. 
Well, it actually resonates with me because, you know, my father passed away a few years ago and his birthday was recent. And, I, you know, I spent part of my day figuring out how to acknowledge his birthday, how, how to grieve his loss. And, you know, it always helps when I write a letter to him, you know, even though the mm. letter isn't, you know, going to him in my mind, in my subconscious, it is. And there's just something... Um, uh, soothing and cathartic about uh, writing a letter, sharing my thoughts, talking to him as if he's still here, and and even going as far as you know putting it in an envelope with a stamp and and throwing it in a mailbox. Uh, there and and I think that's also the the benefit of uh, you know going to visit the you know the, the tombstone and 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 the burial site. Uh, there's you know because that's something that's actionable. So when you talk about actionable versus inactionable uh that that resonates for me because i do find uh comfort in taking action to connect uh mm-hmm. with uh whatever the perceived loss is yeah uh thank you for sharing that i, I think it you know people sometimes ask me that you know, you know is a scientific life or thinking incompatible with religion or spirituality absolutely not i mean i you know they're totally compatible um, I, I encourage people if they're interested in, um, that question and that conversation, our, our current U S director of the national institutes of health, his name is Francis Collins. He's a very religious person. He's written about this, about free will versus, you know, science versus religion. Very interesting, um, very thoughtful writings. You can find them easily online. I, when we hear that, you know, people live on in us, I, I believe that, you know, we can still implement the teachings and I mean, now we're sort of venturing into the personal, but, you know, but I think it's relevant here. I mean, I can still hear stuff that I was with Ben the entire year before he died. I sat with him and recorded a bunch of conversations with him. I was in the hospital when he had his first heart attack. It was really crazy. I was really close to that whole situation. He was my next door colleague at Stanford and I'd worked for him for five years. So prior to that. So we were really close and you know, it's, it's crazy. I can still hear things that he said. I can still kind of, I I do understand what it means even as a rational scientist to, to still feel the person I can still feel like whatever. And this is because I'm sure it's because our representations of people in our nervous system are our representations. Those are internal representations right? And once the person's gone, the internal representation reverberates. It's not like the neurology that represented your father is gone. That neurology is still very active in you in a healthy way, it sounds like, you know? So reconnecting with that neurology is reconnecting with your internal representation of the person. And it it can feel very real. Um, And I think, you know, Ben is, is sorely missed by many, many people, uh, there was a many tributes to him, and I, one in particular comes to mind. The woman, um, former president of MIT, Nancy Hopkins, and uh, and I gave a, a discussion in Mount Sinai before this whole COVID thing on diversity in science. And, and we were talking about Ben in the room there, and it was as if he like it, he came alive in the room, even though he's very much dead. Um, so these things are 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 legitimate um, neurological phenomena. And if you want, if people want to attach spirituality to them, that's fine. I, I don't think it's, um, there's, there, that's not violating any biology. Um, but these are real things, you know, your nervous system is a map of your experience 
and it can be reshaped and rewired, but it is a powerful representation of, of life. And, uh, it's kind of cool to look around and see other people and realize that everyone has these maps inside them of meaning of experience and, um, makes, makes what we see in civilization seem, uh, that much more spectacular to me that we can all have these representations. And yet we, despite the challenges of life, we all still manage to get along thank goodness, most of the time, although there's a lot of work that still needs to be done as we know. Well, and, and, and that's what, you know, part of what gets us all out of bed, right? Is that there, I, my, my biggest fear is that there's no work to be done. Like I, I never want to reach that point. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> yeah, well, uh, knowing a little bit about you and, and, um, basing, uh, you know, my statement on the, the, the current status of the world, I think that there's a lot, there will always be work to be done. I mean, you know, I, I hope, you know, whoever's listening to this, hopefully will derive, uh, um, some value from some of the things I've said, but, uh, but you know, your podcast, I have to say, um, the name of this podcast caught my attention instantaneously. And it's, it's, um, look, if ever there were a time in human history when there was a calling for people to, uh, look inward, look outward and figure out what they were going to do to better the environment of course, the natural environment, but just the, the landscape of humanity, uh, it's now, right? Um, and, you know, I'm the eternal optimist. I have to be. Uh, I really, I think it's, it's a nervous system thing. It's a brain thing. And it's, and it, it's, we're strongly dependent on, you know, who those people are, but it, uh, it's a collective, collective effort. Everyone's got a, everyone's got a anti in. No, you know, and, and to, to, to circle back to what, you know, we we're talking about in the very beginning about in terms of, of opt optic flow and, and panoramic vision, uh, you know, it's why I, I part of why I named my podcast what I did before you kill yourself. It came from a, a woman on a plane. I was I was debating the name with a buddy of mine on a, on a flight. We were just did some shows in Pakistan. We're coming back and uh, the plane is parked on a tarmac. We got in a little early. And I'm like, hey, man, I'm thinking about starting a podcast, suicide prevention, call it before you kill yourself. And he's like, oh, I love that. I would listen to that. I love that title. And then this lady a couple rows in front of me says, be careful what you're talking about. You don't know who's listening in. And then proceeds to tell me a story. This is on a plane uh, <laughs> about how she was in a bathroom with a gun to her head, ready to pull the trigger. And then she heard her baby crying. And she was like, oh, damn, I got to go feed the baby. And that baby saved her life. She, you know, you, you talked earlier about how, uh, uh, about suicide is, um, you said well, a time and, and space. It's a narrowing of time and space. And it, it got that narrow for this woman that she forgot that she had a baby and she forgot to feed the baby. And it wasn't until she heard that baby that she was like, oh, damn, I got to go feed the baby. I, I can't. And that's all it took. And so for me, the, the idea of the podcast is like to be that crying baby of like, hey, did you did you feed the baby? Did you do your laundry? Did you send off that email? Did you because that's how small the window is. It's such You're a small right. window. It's so true. It's so true. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. It's amazing title for a podcast. And, it, and it's. You know, uh, there's suicide leaves people feeling so confused, um, and 
I, I do think that suicidal ideation can be solved as a problem. I think everyone would agree that uh, preventing suicide um, is an extremely important issue. There are people, for instance, working on um, sensors that would allow people to know if they were drifting towards suicidality long before they even realized it cognitively, um, using some really cool technology. Uh, like there are scientists are, you know, we're, we're a weird bunch. I I'll be honest. I mean, we're, you know, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I like to think I'm, you know, functional adult, but you know, we're, we're weird. We're quirky. We're like artists or musicians. We're, we're obsessed. We, we want, we love these puzzles and we want to figure it out, but we also really want the the results of those efforts to get out into the world and to help. And then, you know, that's why I do podcasts. That's why I do public education. That's why my lab works on trying to cure blindness and stress, PTSD and anxiety. So, um, scientists, psychologists, you, I'm sure there are listeners out there, mental health experts, um, you know, parents, kids. I mean, it's, it's happening. I mean, we are, we're, we're making progress and, and it just means it's just going to require more discussions, more, more science, more, more of all of it, more of all of it. Andrew, is there, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you think would be of a value to the listeners? Oh, well, thanks for asking. Well, earlier you asked about my story. Well, here's what I'm going to do, Leo. I think, um, I'm happy to share my story, but I think at this point I'm, I'd love for people to just um, think about their stories and maybe we can circle back at another time, anytime you like. And I'm happy to share my path if you think it could be of value to people. But right now, um, I think I'd like to just, uh, you know, I just want to emphasize that a little bit of attention on people learning to adjust their neurology through behavioral practices like getting some sunlight, doing physiological size, some gratitude practice. Those little things give you a handle on a system in your body and brain that at times in our less good moments can feel like it controls us, but it, they do, they're good in the moment cause they help, but they also are good in later moments cause they remind us that we have this control panel, our breathing, our vision, our behaviors, and you know, learn, learn that control panel. It, we, none of us have to be a slave to our own neurology. And look, I acknowledge there are people out there who might have chemical imbalances or need prescription medication therapy and these kinds of things. It's, it's all of value. Um, you know, there's great trained professionals out there that can help you navigate that, but everybody, those people and everyone, um, as healthy as they feel can learn to tap into their neurology a bit through these healthy ways. That's my hope. And, um, do it. And, uh, I encourage you to do it. You know, I encourage you to be action oriented and to learn yourself through the system of, uh, these behavioral practices and, and, you know, reflect on them, improve on them. I'm, I'm just what, I'm just one voice in an ocean of voices. Um, and it does require a whole community. If you, I, I have one request, um, sorry for the music outside. Someone's having a, it's a Friday and I don't know if that's coming through and they're blasting some music, but, um, my one request is if you do, uh, find something to be of use, we have a saying in science, which is watch one, do one, teach one which is, you know, if you find something you like and it works for you, maybe it's physiological size or morning sunlight or whatever, you know, um, pass along those tools to people. Um, watch one, do one, teach one. It should be watch one, do many, um, teach many, but uh, watch one, do one, teach one. It's just kind of a reminder that, you know, these practices are, are of value, but 
Um, the more people that do them, the better. I don't need or want credit. Uh, Mother Nature holds the patent. So uh, this is not a, a business thing for me. Um, maybe consider passing along some tools if you find they work for you. And if if they don't, you know, toss them aside and keep going. Look for the ones that do. Thanks a lot, Andrew. And last question, uh, I ask this of all my guests, because I always imagine there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of ending their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them, Andrew? Remember that your perception of time, not your perception of self, is the problem in that moment. And that your perception of time can be returned to your control. When people are in a moment of wanting to kill themselves, they have lost for reasons that, you know, are going to differ from person to person, but they've lost a sense of time. You know, that we hear the words, this too shall pass. Those words are meaningless to a person who's in that dark tunnel but realizing that the perception of time is a neurologic phenomenon, like a, you know, like a mosquito bite, you know, it itches no matter what you tell yourself about it. But remembering that the mosquito bite is not a disease. The mosquito bite is not you. It's a, it's a, it's an inflammation. It's a shift in your skin, just like suicidal ideation is a shift in your neurology and your perception of time. And if you can readjust your perception of time, I do think that there might be a portal to a mode of thinking where you'll find yourself in a place of wanting to sustain your life and persevere and not just persevere and grind it out, but really, you know, hit some smoother running roads. I know this because I've seen it, uh, you know, I've seen the transitions that people have gone into and out of these states. And you know, I just hope if somebody's on that edge or they're close to that edge, that they understand that their neurology is modifiable and it's not who they are. Identity, it's a small piece of, of their neurology. It is not their identity. So that's what I have to offer. Thank you so much, Andrew, and thank you so much, listeners, for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help for you calling the 1-800-SUICIDE or 273-TALK or the other international phone numbers. There's talk, there's text, there's someone out there who is willing and ready to hear your story. Uh, it, and you can always go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you.